So let's read in Jonah chapter 3. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and sad and ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger? that we perish not. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. God will bless his word, for sure of it. I'll just finish my speech. So, Jonah chapter 3. And one of the main themes of this chapter is just this that Jonah is instructed to go even although he didn't go before. So there's a basic thing. He's been spoken to for a second time and he's been told to go. And that's despite the fact that having been told to go before, he didn't. But he still is told to go because God hasn't abandoned Jonah and God hasn't abandoned Jonah's mission and God does not abandon his servants when they mess up. And Jonah had messed up badly, but still the message comes, go. (coughs) People talk about God as being the God of the second chance. I mean, these kind of expressions we use and people say, well, we don't believe in a God of a second chance or we do believe in a God of a second chance. And we use these expressions. These expressions aren't found in the Bible and they're not particularly (coughs) helpful because God deals with every individual in a different way. And because he deals with me in a certain way, it doesn't mean he'll deal with you in the same way and vice versa. And in this instance, God comes to Jonah and God recommissions Jonah. God gives Jonah the same task to do again. God shows grace. God doesn't reject him for his disobedience. He doesn't give up on Jonah when Jonah ran away. And he doesn't hold Jonah's sin against him in the sense of precluding him from serving him he forgives him and then he asks him to be his instrument again now he doesn't do that in every case but he can do that and he does do that in this case and so for example you see it done as well in the case of Peter and you remember Peter is this dramatic failure where he denies the Lord with oaths and cursings and it's the last interaction really between the Lord and Peter because the Lord turned and looked at Peter before the Lord went to the cross. Peter's response to that look from the Lord was extreme remorse, which actually became repentance. By the way, it's almost impossible to repent of something immediately. Remorse is immediate. Repentance is a considered 
flow that comes out of remorse. So you're in, when you do something that's wrong and you know it's wrong, you'll be overwhelmed usually by remorse, but the decisions that you make subsequent to that will determine whether it's <coughs> repentance or not. Judas is an example. Judas was full of remorse, but he never repented. And so there's a distinction between remorse and repentance. That is why if someone sins and you say, does that person repented, it's very difficult to assess that or to know that or for even the person to know it themselves in the immediate aftermath of the circumstances. So here is God and he's speaking again. And it's interesting that as he speaks again, he says, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So he says, go to the same place. So God hasn't forgotten about Nineveh. God hasn't changed his plans. And God is recommissioning him to do exactly what he was told to do the first time. So go 550 miles or so to Nineveh. Get up and go. Go to that evil, brutal, immoral city that two or three times has actively tried to wipe out your own nation. Jonah, you didn't go the first time. Now go this time. Secondly, I'm not going to give you a new message to preach. Go and preach what I told you to preach. So even though I'm not going to put new words into your mouth, cry against it as you were meant to the first time, for their wickedness has come up before me. Go to the same place, say the same thing, and go even though you don't feel like going. You know, discover this, that faith has very little to do with feelings in the Bible. And it has everything to do with obedience. And here, he has to go. And whether he feels like it or not, he has to obey. You know, sometimes we make decisions based upon feelings rather than faith. And we make decisions upon what we think and feel rather than upon what God has said and declared in his word. And so, Jonah, go. Go to the same place. Preach the same message. Go whether you feel like it or not. And go even although you may not thrive and even although you may go at personal cost. I was thinking about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And in Daniel 3, verses 16 to 18, you remember the challenge that they had. And they say to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from this burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand O king but if not be it known unto you O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up so they're saying we have absolute confidence in our god he is able to deliver us he will deliver us but if he doesn't deliver us we're still not going to bow the knee and so they were willing to be obedient to God, even though there was a potential cost of being thrown into that fiery furnace. Jonah, go to Nineveh, go in obedience, say what I've told you to say, even though you don't want to go, go. And even though there may be consequences, go. And the instruction is, be obedient. 
So Jonah reacts differently this time than he did before. Is there some spare seats about there? There we go. Thank you. We're just in Jonah chapter 3. So Jonah reacts differently this time. We don't know why. We don't know whether it was out of love or fear of the Lord. We don't know whether it was because he didn't want to end up in another big fish. We have no idea. But his disobedience and his subsequent experience have certainly been used by God to produce a different outcome. And now he is obedient. He actually has the ability to walk in obedience and still not be in perfect harmony with God. It's interesting because if the end of the book is anything to, to show we would discover this, that Jonah still feels the same way as he did at the beginning. And you come, folks, I think you might need to come down a wee bit. Are there any spare seats? The seats down at the front here. Okay. There's six seats down here. There we go. So we're in Jonah chapter 3, and Jonah is reacting differently to being sent again by the Lord to Nineveh. And I think he, I've got this little picture in my mind of Jonah being told, like a little child, to go up the stairs or to go and do something, to go and tidy his room. And he's going to do it, but he's stomping up the stairs, whispering to himself under his breath, and... Ruth seems to recognise that. And he's sort of stomping up the stairs and he is going to do what he's going to do because the consequences of not he's already experienced. So he's going to go in obedience. He still doesn't want to go. And he's going reluctantly. But he is going. I think maybe that's like us sometimes as well with the Lord. So Jonah begins to go and in verse number 5 of chapter 3 he enters into the city a day's journey and he begins to preach. Now, it says this, that he cried and he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So his sermon is interesting, it's brief. Maybe like most sermons should be. It's very brief, it's also easily understood. It's pointed and, although not many words, in fact in the English, eight words in the authorised, in the Hebrew, only five. Five word sermon. And it's on like rotation. He's preaching, he's declaring it. He, he's pronouncing God's judgment. And he comes in simplicity. And God does not tell Jonah, go and save Nineveh. God does not tell Jonah, go and make them repent. God does not hold Jonah accountable for the response of the people of Nineveh to what he preaches. God just says to Jonah, do I say, make the declaration Preach the word, leave the outcome to me. None of that is Jonah's responsibility. His responsibility is to share the word that the people needed to hear in their sin. And he produces a simple prophetic word of judgment. Much like the preaching of John the Baptist, actually. The preaching of John the Baptist was pithy, was pointed, was judgment-orientated, and was a word of warning to the people. <coughs> now we see God's mercy in this. God's mercy for these people. He is not leaving them without a warning. He's not leaving them uninformed in their ignorance. He's sending a message that sounds a bit unpalatable and extreme, but is a, an evidence of God's mercy 
for these people. Now, sometimes we seem reluctant to preach the same message of coming judgment for sin. And that type of preaching is often portrayed as being extreme and it maybe is presented sometimes in an extreme fashion but in terms of concept is seen as being somehow speaking to people in a way that's offensive or actually speaking to people in a way that offends and is disadvantaging them in some way but why would that be? If we genuinely believe that people in their sin are under the judgment of God and heading out to a lost eternity, why ever would you not tell them? Because of how it makes you feel delivering that message. Or the response of the people to you as being the messenger who delivers the message. I'm speaking as much genuinely to myself as anyone else. There are aspects of God's message that God has given us to communicate that we find perhaps more or easier, uh, we find it more enjoyable or appealing to deliver. I mean, who wouldn't love to tell people about the love of God shown in forgiveness and in grace and in mercy and compassion and to demonstrate that at the cross of Calvary and to show the Saviour in all his saving grace and in all his sacrifice. Who wouldn't love to communicate that? To speak about the extent and the depth of God's forgiveness. But that message is incomplete without the warning to people that there is a requirement to respond to that message of forgiveness because of God's wrath and because of God's judgment and because of the inevitable consequence that awaits a sinner for their sin. Perhaps when we lose the sense of that, then we lose the desire to communicate it. So he has a simple message. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's a message of judgment. It's a message of warning. And it's interesting to me that in that message, there was no opportunity for forgiveness or repentance preached whatsoever. It was just judgment is coming, you've got 40 days. Judgment is coming, you've got 40 days. One writer said this, I believe we are living in a ripe and fertile mission field where many even in mainstream culture are crying out for meaning and purpose and an answer to the world of sin they find themselves in. It is God's deeper mercy that he doesn't let people be content with anything less than life and joy and peace that comes from him alone and from his son. This is God's mercy in the gospel. God does not just let people go. Does not just let people go on in their lives without sending a warning to them. I was interested when I was reading again to discover, and I didn't, it was one of these quotes that came up in Google. 
and they were surprised by it. And then I discovered there's actually a song written about this by Paul McCartney some time ago. And this was the tagline, but actually when you read the lyrics of his song, this is the theme of his song. We live in hope of deliverance from the darkness that surrounds us. We live in hope of deliverance from the darkness that surrounds us. He wrote a whole song about that. And that idea is such a prevalent idea. Now, people don't turn to Christ generally. People don't turn to the Bible or even God. But there is increasingly evident a hopelessness and a futility to life in our modern society. And you look at the the problems of identity and of meaning and of confusion and of people looking for relevance and people looking for reality and people looking for credibility and authenticity. All of these are words that are connected to this single issue. The same thing. That there is despair and there is hopelessness and there is a cry, I think, in our society that is being answered by all sorts of things, from the ridiculously high suicide rate, right through to the whole gender issues that are so prevalent with people searching and looking and seeking for something in this world beyond what this world can just provide. And in our day, we have a message, as Jonah had a message, some of which, most of which is disagreeable when it is presented, which faces people with the core issue of sin and of the reality of a living God who is righteous and who is holy and to whom we are accountable and we require to give an answer. And it's our responsibility as Christians to fulfill that divine commission that we have been given. To live within our community, not passively but actively, not inwardly, not inward looking but outward looking. To reach out and to spread the good news of a saviour, but also spread the warning that sin is consequence. And that there is coming judgment. And that if people don't wake up to it, then they'll, they'll drift and they will plunge into an eternity of unspeakable loss. And when you think about it, from your personal perspective, from my personal perspective, from our corporate perspective as local churches, wherever you find yourself in your working day environment or your education environment, and you see yourself in a different way, as a beacon, as a voice, as a messenger, as an example, placed there by God for him to do his work, for him to speak through you, for him to actually bring the news to your environment, to your community, whatever that is, that there are eternal issues which are real. There is a living God. Sin is real. Hell is real. Life is short. So we should be motivated in our gospel outreach, corporately, locally, individually. Jonah goes and Jonah has a message to preach. But listen, we have a message to preach. It's a bigger message than he had. It's a message of a saviour, of salvation, of hope and of life and of light. And a world that's dark and desolate for many. And then 
something happened. And the strange thing is, Jonah knew this was going to happen. That's why he didn't want to go. What a challenge is that? Why we don't preach? Because we don't want the consequences of God working. Because our environment is so controlled and the edges are so neat and tidy that the moral mess that's out there is just too much to think about and cope with. So if we don't evangelise, we won't have all the hassle that comes from it. And the sorts of folks that we despise won't get saved and we won't need to have anything to do with it. <coughs> we won't need to sort out all the problems and deal with all the issues that come along. So let's just stay within. Let's just keep behind the walls. Let's just keep the voice quiet. Jonah preaches and God acts because the people of Nineveh believe God. Imagine that. Jonah preaches and people believe. Listen, folks, that's what happens when the gospel is preached. Even today, we've lost sight of it. The expectation, the belief, the faith, the trust that when God's word is proclaimed in God's way and when God's son is presented, there will be people who respond. There will be people who believe. The Bible tells us. Yes, the majority will not. We see that from scripture. But there will be some. And in Noah and in Jonah's day, I should say, this is what happened. The people of Nineveh believed God. Now, they didn't believe Jonah. You see, they understood this, that the credit doesn't go to Jonah and they see past Jonah. Jonah's just a messenger and they see past to the God that sent Jonah. And it leads to conviction and it leads to individual repentance and in Nineveh, person after person after person heard a message of God's judgment and they humbled themselves and they repented of their sin because God was at work. It's an amazing thing if you ever see this happen. There's a kind of it's, it's indescribable. There's, there's something when God moves and it stirs the heart. And, and when you see, the last time I saw this personally was when Jamie and I were up in Shetland and we had a gospel effort that was the focal point really of the efforts of the local people that had been going on for some time. And then it was all kind of brought to head in a gospel effort and folks came and folks got saved and it was a savour of life unto life and death unto death because people took their life two people actually committed suicide not because of my preaching but they committed suicide because they came face to face one particularly came face to face with the issues of their sin and made decisions and out of these meetings, five people professed to be saved and two people took their own life of the people that were brought along to these meetings. Savour of life. The, the reality of the gospel. The reality of these things. And the, the, the grip of sin in some people's lives. Some liberated and some just not. And when God moves, it's an unusual thing. It's a tremendous thing. But it's also, it's not a scary thing, but it's also a realisation that there is a God who's moving here. This is a bigger thing than just those preaching times. Nineveh responded. And from the chiefest person, the king, right down to the man in the street, so to speak, people were saved from God's judgement. 
Listen, I noted this. The gospel can save anyone. That's why we proclaim it to everyone. And from the greatest to the least. You see, Jonah had placed limitations on God and limitations in God's word. But when the word was set free, then the word did what God would have it do. And from the greatest to the least. Jonah was not sent just to preach to one category of people. He wasn't just sent to the poor and the marginalised. He wasn't just sent to the rich and the powerful. He was just sent to preach to all. And from every aspect, from every place in that society, people repented. You see, the idea is just this, that all that was required was Jonah's obedience. That's all that was required in simplicity. And God's word was sufficient. God's word was powerful. And Jonah simply told people what God said to tell them. And that, you know, when Paul came to places, that's what he did. You know, he came to Corinth. He said, I I didn't come with clever arguments. And I didn't come with big uh, philosophical debates. I came and I preached Christ and him crucified. He says to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And, believe it or not, in Nineveh, even the government repented. Imagine that. Imagine the government repenting. I can think of many things I'd like the government to repent of, but imagine the government repenting of their sin. That's what happened in Nineveh. And the king of Nineveh issues a legal decree calling upon everyone to join in humble acts of of repentance and petition God for his mercy. This is a kind of this is a kind of national response of grief and realization that they have been sinning against God. The truth has been preached, and things start to happen. Hearing leads to believing, but believing is expressed in action, because what they did was shaped by what they believed, and they now believe in a God, and they're responding to a God who's bigger than they are, who's bigger than all their idolatry is. And the king gets off his throne and he takes off the signs of his status because he recognised this, that there's a greater than him. And he humbles himself, demonstrating that he's as accountable as the next man to the Lord God himself. And his pride is replaced with humility and he repents. And I'm interested in this. When they speak about repentance in verse number eight, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. And this is it. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that's in their hands. This is specific repentance. They don't go from just praising the pantheon of idols and and pagan deities to suddenly changing that and now praising the one living God. They recognise this, that their worship of these false gods actually dictated how they lived their lives. And because of that, they know this, that if they turn to worship the living God, then their behaviour and activity has to reflect that. So there needs to be a change. There needs to be repentance. So it's not simply what they say. Nineveh, as we've seen, was a kind of epicentre of violence. And we see that in verse number 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Apparently, I read... 
that when the folk from Nineveh went to war, they carried the bodies of their enemies' leaders into the city and displayed them as trophies. The king would take the head of the conquered king into his royal palace and it would be placed in a pole in the centre of the feast. There was a brutality, there was a violence about these people. And so the king understands that that is consistent with the worship of pagan deities and idols, but it's not consistent with the worship of this God. And he says, you're going to have to repent of these specific sins if you're going to turn to God. And then in verse number nine, he says this, and who can tell if God will turn? Who can tell? Why does he say that? Because in the preaching there was no promise of deliverance. There was no promise of forgiveness. God would have been righteous to destroy this city. There's no presumption upon God's grace. They threw themselves upon God's mercy. And he said, who can tell? If God will turn and repent away from his fierce anger. Do you know that even with their repentance, God would have been just to enact his wrath. God would have been perfectly righteous to destroy this city. This is something I think that we forget about God. We think that God has to show forgiveness, has to do certain things, because we determine that that's what he should do. That's the kind of God that we have created. When you turn to the Bible, you find this. Sometimes God is a God of absolute judgment. Sometimes he shows mercy. Sometimes he doesn't. Do you remember that it's the same God who saved the people of Nineveh, who destroyed the cities of the plain? And here there is a repentance on the part of these people. And in Psalm 57, when David confesses his sin, he says this, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He understands this, that the only way that God will turn from judgment and discipline upon him is when there is a reality about his repentance and there's a brokenness about his heart condition before God. And if David gets himself low in the presence of God and begs for the mercy and compassion of God for his sin, and Jonah comes with a message of wrath and of judgment upon this violent, wicked city. But you know, the reality is just this, that God does overthrow this city. <coughs> this city is altered. But this city is not overthrown in fire. This city is not changed by God's destruction. This city is changed by God's word. And it was the preaching of God's word that led to the change. The repentance of the people. The salvation of the people. The root and branch change. God doesn't bring wrath to Nineveh because Nineveh as it was no longer exists. This is a different city now. This is a different context. 
and his proclaimed word has led to conviction of sin, contrition and evident repentance whose lives are now different and the change is evidence in the difference. And we see that in verse 10. It doesn't say that God listened to their words. It says that God saw their works. That they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them. And he didn't know. God saw their works. Not God listened to their words. God didn't change his mind, by the way. That's a whole interesting subject. As if God vacillates. It's an interesting thing that God is consistent. The whole subject in itself about the immutability of God. And God behaving consistent with his declared character and word. And here God sees the repentance and he sees the fruits of repentance and he acts accordingly, consistent with his character. He saves them. I want to bring a wee word of challenge to us now as we think about this. And I was thinking about it in our context not nationally or globally, but right down to where we are. So imagine, just think, not imagine, but just think about your community. For those who are in Hopewell, that's Bridge of Weir and the surrounding uh, villages. For some here, it might be down in Ayrshire, or some in Lanarkshire, or some beyond. And you think about the community in which you live and serve and so on. And you think about your responsibility before the Lord to be a light to be a beacon to be a voice remembering this that you cannot claim the body truth of the New Testament without accepting the responsibilities of that what I mean is that in the New Testament you think about the church in two ways. You think about the church which is his body, which is every Christian, every single person, as soon as they become a Christian, are immediately part of what is called in the Bible the body of Christ. That is true from Christians historically way back uh, to the days of Pentecost and right until the Lord comes again. Every single Christian. There are no denominational distinctions Baptised, unbaptised, doing well, not doing well, no national distinctions, nothing. There is no distinction between an individual, between two individuals within that entity, the body of Christ. And Christ is the head. We are subject to him and we're accountable to him. Now, when Paul is speaking about the effect of that in a local context, when he writes to the church at Corinth in chapter 14... And he's writing about what we do as a local church and how we do it. He then says, now you are the body of Christ. Except there is no definite article in the original language. It's you are body of Christ. Which means that you in your local environment as a local church bear the character of the big, of the body of Christ. So all that is true about the body of Christ 
finds its local manifestation and expression in the local church. So again, Christ is the head and so on. And the idea is just this, that the work of Christ, which he began here upon earth, did not stop when he went back to heaven. You read the first few verses of the book of Acts. The record of the things that Jesus began <coughs> to do and to teach. He began to do these things. He hasn't stopped. So when he physically is removed from this scene, then the question is just this. If someone is going to hear the words that come out of Christ's mouth, the words of Christ, when the Lord was here, then they would hear them from him. Now that he's gone, how does someone hear the words of Christ? When you think about the compassion of Christ, when the Lord was here, he manifested that compassion. He's not here now, so how is that compassion manifested? So you can go on. The answer is just this. He is in heaven, but we as the body of Christ are here upon earth. And so the hands, the feet, the mouth, all these things, that's us. So if his word's going to be spoken, it's us that speak it. If his compassion is going to be demonstrated, it's us that demonstrate it. You know, if the messenger's going to go somewhere, the Lord's not going, we've to go. We are the body of Christ. And so the Lord is going to work in your community through him. It's not mystical. He's going to work through people. He's going to speak through people. It won't be funny things in the stellar you know, world and that kind of... It will be people. Because we are body of Christ. And when you think about this aspect of that truth... If people in your community are going to hear the words of warning that Christ spoke when he was here upon earth, how often he warned people about their sin and about judgment and how straight he would speak to people. How's that going to happen now? If you don't say it, it doesn't get said. It's as simple as that. I mean, it's not mystical. If it doesn't come out of your mouth, in your context, in your environment, it doesn't get said. Think about your office. Think about your workplace. Think about your neighbourhood. Think about your neighbours. Nobody else is speaking to them. God put you there. Nobody else is demonstrating the love of Christ to them. Nobody else is an example of righteous living to them. Because we are body of Christ. Now I'm not saying that we are exclusively Christ represented in this room, in the community. There are other Christians, of course. There are other community of Christians. There are other local churches and so on. But I'm thinking about us as we're sitting here. Jonah had a message to preach. He went and preached it. We have a message to preach. We need to go and preach it. Jonah was sent to a place that he didn't particularly want to go to people he wasn't comfortable with. In fact, worse than that. So are we. 
The people responded because God worked, because God's word was let loose amongst them. And who can tell? Who can genuinely tell what would happen if we let God's word loose in our community? Who could tell? Could it be? Well, the answer is yes, it could be. Could it be that there could be a mighty working of God in repentance that we could never predict, (coughs) that we could never do ourselves? Could it be that God would speak and the community would be affected like this community was? And you say, well, it probably could, but the reality is it won't. You see, that's the way we think. That's just the way we, that's our instinctive, it might just be the waste of Scotland, that's our instinctive pessimism. Maybe, but probably not, we'll leave that to Nicaragua or somewhere, that kind of thing happens abroad, it doesn't happen here. And so Jonah lets the word loose, and God sees their work, that they've turned from evil, and God does not bring his judgment to bear upon them. Do you know, there's something, this I'll finish, there is something that is, deeply important in life and that is very special I just can't get the words to express it that when you are in close proximity to someone when they get saved and when it dawns upon your soul what's just happened someone (coughs) who was going to be judged by God for their sin eternally has been saved. Do you know, that's a marvellous thing. Let us not lose sight of it. Let us not lose the thrill of that. The salvation of the soul is a very, very precious thing. And here is Jonah, and we're going to see this evening that instead of him rejoicing, you know, he wasn't calling for prayer meetings or singing the Lord's praise. So look at verse 1 of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah. He was raging because folk were saved. He was absolutely raging. The wrong folk had got saved. He couldn't believe it. And the consequence was something that he was he dreaded. These people getting saved. Let's not be too self-righteous because let's be honest. There are people in your community, if they get saved, you'd be like, oh boy. Oh boy. This is going to change our life a bit. Because our neighbours just get saved. And you can think of all sorts of scenarios that might be challenging to us. Let's take the challenge of it into the day, a challenge in the gospel. Let's pray.